as I was saying, I was reading an article in the New York Times, and uh, it caught my attention. I don't normally read the obituaries. There's enough suffering and sadness around that I don't often read it. But I read this one because it seemed unusual. It was a man who was a rabbi in Brooklyn, New York, and he died at age 95. He had a good life, 95 years old. And what was interesting about it was what, the, what had happened to this man at a very important time in history. His name was Heschel Schachter. And in 1945, as Germany was collapsing and many of the Allies were moving in, Schachter was there when all this was happening. And he realized that he was with Patton's army. They were getting closer and closer to the very heart of Germany. And he got out a map and he started looking. He'd found a German map and he looked at it and he realized that at this point he probably was not very far from one of the death camps called Buchenwald. And so he went to his commanding officer and said, would you let me have a jeep and a driver? I, I think there could be live Jewish people there at that camp. And they told him, go, see if you can find anybody alive. And so Schachter went, Heschel went, and he got there, and he was deeply disappointed. For one thing, the doors were open, and all the guards were gone. They could walk right in. But he didn't see any Jewish people at all. And then he found a man who just looked awful, and he, he saw him. He said, can you tell me, do you know if there's any Jewish people? And he said, yes, there are. And he pointed him to a huge barracks down along the way. And when he opened up that door, it was like walking into hell. Here are these men and boys, this is the male one, the men and boys, many of them just looked like living skeletons, and they were all packed up and they were terrified. They didn't recognize the symbols that he was wearing on his, on his, on his, on his when, here. And what happened is when they saw all these things, they weren't sure, what, what is he from? They didn't realize he was an American. And so here he was, he was just over this, and so and he, he, at first he couldn't even talk, and he saw this horrible group of hundreds of men packed into this room, some of them dying and some of them already dead. And, and he just stood there for a moment and he said, he thought, I'll, I'll try German. And he just said, Sie sind frei, Sie sind frei, which means you're free. You're alive and you're free. And they couldn't believe it. Many of these men just couldn't believe it. No, this can't be true. This is a lie. They're trying to trick us again. And he said, no, I'm with the American forces. They are right behind me. They're coming here. They're bringing help. They're bringing doctors. And you are free. And they still couldn't believe it. You are free. There's nothing. You, you are free. You can get up. You can walk out on your own. And they didn't believe it. And he started going from place to place into the different barracks, knocking on the door, saying, you're free. You're free. You've survived. You've made it. The war's coming to an end. And again, they didn't believe it. But in time, when they saw the troops coming in and the doctors coming and getting food and they were getting help, it was just an amazing, overwhelming type of experience. For them, that idea of freedom was a wonderful thing to them. They never thought they'd have it, but they knew they were freedom. That way they were free. And you know, freedom's an important thing to us. We think about it as Americans. We went through a long and difficult war so we could be free from Britain and from their control. For us as Americans, we often celebrate on the 4th of July. It's a thing where we, mount our, we remember we had freedom. And that freedom is so precious to us. Yesterday, I ran out of stamps. So I went and bought some stamps. And on that stamp, there was only one word. It said, freedom. I thought, that was so helpful of them to give me that for, an, for this passage. But the point is, 
freedom is something that we as Americans value so much. And of course, people in other cultures do the same thing. And there are some cultures that have more freedom than others. But freedom is important. But you see, the reality is, it could be that for many of us, we expect freedom, we have freedom, we have so many freedoms here in America. But there's other kinds of things that bind us, that keep us from really being free. There's things that come up where we feel like, you know, we should be free, but we're not. People who've been enslaved by, by abuse. People who have been through very difficult times, who've been through poverty. People who are, who are really, they don't have that sense of freedom because of their fear. And if you look at people around you, you realize there's so many people with so many issues, so many struggles. We may say as a country, we have freedom, but many people are bound to many things that keep them from being all that God wanted them to be and all that they are. And as a country, we're grateful that we have men and women that are good counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists who often make a good help a lot of people. But it's amazing just how expensive that all is for our country. Two years ago, they did a survey trying to get their arms around a figure. What is it costing us per year in terms of psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors? And again, it had to be a rough figure because you couldn't get every person there. But here's what they came up with. They thought that was two years ago that our government spent $150 billion on psychiatric and psychological issues for people. 150, not million, billion people. And the reality is that if we are honest with ourselves, we so often find out the fact that really we're not the person we actually want to think we are. We all have a kind of persona. I, this is who I am. And as long as you only know me on Facebook and don't have to live with me, I seem like a pretty good person until you meet them. And then when you marry them, I better be really careful here. When you marry them, it is a wonderful, terrific thing. But you certainly find out relatively soon that, guess what? Your spouse is not perfect. Now, I know some people that believe their spouse is perfect, but I'm not going to name them Larry, but that's OK. Um, <laughs> but there is that sense of, you know, I married a person who is not perfect. And that moment can be like really kind of amazing. Like, you mean you're not perfect? And your spouse looks at you and says, do you think you're perfect? No, and the longer you live with one another, the more you realize just how imperfect you are and how imperfect each of us is. And you know what's amazing here is that when you start being honest, which is always something hard to do, you start realizing that I'm probably not as good as a person as you think I am, or I like to think I am. And the reality is that give us enough time We'll all hurt one another or be hurt by one another. We'll do things we know we shouldn't do, but we do it anyways. And what we do is we continue doing things, and we wonder, why can I not stop this? Why am I bound by this? Why does this keep doing this? Why do we keep coming up with the same argument back and forth? And that's a good question. Why is it that there's something wrong with all of us? Why not? I mean, you would think with billions of people on the earth, you ought to be able to find somebody that's absolutely perfect. Yet if you find them, just spend about 10 minutes with them, and you'll find out they aren't perfect either. And what's interesting is that from people who've thought, if we only do this or that, we're going to find perfection in this world. Some of you may be familiar with a guy from the early 20th century named H.G. Wells. 
He got a lot of people up in the area of New Jersey where my father was living at that time because they did a thing on the radio in which they told them, this is just a story, don't get nervous. But they said Martians are now landing in New Jersey. And people started going crazy, and there was traffic jams, and people, it was awful. But anyways, he was a famous writer, H.G. Wells. And in 1937, here's what he said. We are on the plateau, he said, where the world is going to become perfect. He said, we are going to have unity. There will be no more wars. The country, the nation, the whole country is going to be like a beautiful garden. That's what's in store for us. Think of the date, 1937. Ten years later, H.G. Wells was a broken man. H.G. Wells thought it was going to be nirvana, whatever you want to call it, the most wonderful place in the world. But after all that happened in Germany and Japan and Nagasaki and all of that, he was a broken man. He'd won, he did not want to admit that not only is the world broken, but he personally is a broken person. Back in 1913, there was a comic strip that came out that became very, very popular. It went on for almost 40 years. It was one called Pogo. Now, I'm not going to ask any of you if you remember it, because if you did, well, never mind. Pogo was a story about these bunch of creatures that lived out in the swamps and stuff. And what was interesting about this is that there's a statement that he once made in this cartoon thing that really captured a lot of people. And what this story was in this cartoon, Pogo was being asked this question, why is there so much suffering and evil in this world? And his famous statement was, we have met the enemy and he is us. We have met the enemy and he is us. In other words, don't be looking at this person and that person, that country and this country. Look within. And you don't have to look very far and you find out there's something wrong with us. Now, there's some people say, well, see, that's just the problem. If we just had better education and we educated people, things would get better. We say, really? Maybe? I don't know. We all, I'm really big for education. I think that's great. They say, well, science. Science is going to help us with all this, and we're going to find out that we can all work together. It's going to be a, a nation and people of love, and it's all going to be wonderful. Well, okay. Science, you think? All these things. Music. Music is so beautiful. It can be a great help to us. All that's true. But what is so strange is when we open up this story, we're talking about this fact, what happened in Germany. What was the most developed nation in the world in 1937? It was Germany. They had the best educational system. They had some of the best technology stuff. They had, you know, this is the place of Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Handel, all these great people there. How is it possible that the most technologically, musically nation in the world could have something to do with what happened in Germany in 1937 to 1945. Because, oh, well, you know, it's just those Nazis, just those few people. Impossible. There were tens of thousands of people who had to be involved with that if you're going to kill six million people. And for people who say, oh, well, science is going to help us. Education's all we need. It's saying, really, those things may help on the periphery, but it's not going to change the human heart. We're not talking about the heart. We're not talking about dum, 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 heart. We're talking about the heart as the place where we have volition, where we have choices, where we love and where we hate. 
And so if we think that's going to change it, it's not going to. The Bible, whether you think this is a possibility or not, the Bible that we believe and that we teach takes us back and says, why are we all so messed up? It takes us right back to the very first book called Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, it tells the story how God in his mercy created Adam, and God in his mercy created Eve, and they were a couple, and they were love, and they had this wonderful, perfect life together. Now, we don't know how long that happened and how long it stayed like this, but what it tells us in the scriptures, at some point, they had a choice they could make. Do you want to stay with God and be obedient to him and experience all the love and joy he has for you, or do you want to go out on your own? and have your own life. And tragically, they went out on their own, and it wasn't anything like they thought it was going to be. In fact, it was awful. And it was tragic. And they were told to get away, away from the, anymore, from where God had them to be, there in the garden. And the reality is, it's somehow something broke in the human genome, it seems, almost. Like, somehow something has happened where the problems that they had, the sin, the issues that they had, did not stop with their first son or their second son. It continued generation after generation after generation. You know, some people say, well, you know, that baby's born. It's just absolutely pure. You know, it's only because we give it bad things. Well, you know what? We just had two baby dedications. And I can tell you the Bedwells and I can tell you the Tampkins are not going to have classes on how to be selfish, how to kick your sister, how to get what you want, how to get the most food more than your brother. You don't have to give them any classes. It's part of who they are. It's like part of their DNA. Some of you are big into computers, and you know what malware is. It could be Trojans, it could be viruses, but they go in, they went, they multiply, they go into other servers, they go into other computers, and they can spread like wildfire and wreck your computer and cause all kinds of problems. It's sort of like, this is more like cosmic and spiritual malware that got started and continues on even to this day. It's that we're not what we're meant to be, and it never has not worked out that way. It's almost like there's, almost like there's like this renegade DNA that's being passed on from generation to generation, which just helps us be more and more selfish, more and more concerned about ourselves, and it's tragic. Now, some people say, you know, that is a really dark view of the human condition. I would say, I'm just a realist. You don't have to go very far to find out it is a broken world full of broken people. And I can tell you, as a pastor, I get to see a lot of it. Not just in people, but in myself as well. Now, if we stop the message right here and said, have a great day. It's like, really? The good news is that as bad as that bad news is, you can't believe how great the good news is. The news is so great because there's a person named Jesus. And you may call him whatever phrase, how you pronounce it in your country. It may be Yeshua, or it may be Jesus, as my grandfather would say, Jesus, or Isa, whatever you want to call it. It's talking about the same person. It's talking about Jesus, God's son. And what's so amazing that when God looked down upon this world, broken, evil, all the crime that's going on in our country, he could have said, you know what? These people ain't worth it. Let them go. Let them go kill each other. Maybe we will start over on another planet. 
He could have, but he didn't. Instead, what he did is out of love. God said, you know what? This is a broken planet. There's nobody there that could ever rescue them. He said, but I'll do one thing. I will send my own son to come and die upon a Roman cross to be the one that will take all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame of generation after generation. I'm going to pile it all up onto one person upon his head, and that's going to be Jesus. How's he going to do that? Because God is going to show the fact that he can be fully just because sin is going to be punished. Sin is what we fail to do or what we do that's wrong, that just accumulates, and he's saying, I'm going to bring my son. He is going to take the wrath. He's the one who's going to take the terrible price. Because as a just God, I just can't say, oh, it's not a big deal. Let's just forget about it. Instead, God says, this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to send my son. So the question, how can God as a judge of the earth be just and forgiven? Because of fact, he's letting his son in obedience to him, saying, I want you to come to an earth where you're going to be rejected, where they're going to spit on you, where they're going to beat you, and ultimately they're going to crucify you. Not because of anything you did wrong, because you've done no wrong, but because out of love for a broken planet, I'm going to have you bear all the sins of all the world, of every generation, from all time. And so Jesus was willing to go into a broken world to take the suffering, the judgment that I deserve, that you deserve, that every person deserves, and to take it upon himself. Jesus is saying, I'll take it. If you don't know what I did, I was in prison, I'll take it. But you don't understand by this, I'll take it, Jesus says, because out of the love of my Father and my love for you, I'm willing to go to a cross to be mocked, to be scorned, to be beaten, to die a sinner's death, even though I never, ever sinned. For us today, that is one of the most amazing, incredible, wonderful facts of the reality of who God is and what he's done for us. When we were unable to do anything for him, he took the initiative that we might have a relationship with him. He recognizes that in our own we had no hope, but with him there's all kinds of hope. And it's important because as Christians, what we believe today is that when Jesus died on the cross, he was really dead. I mean, they made sure he was really dead. But the good news is, is that two days later, on the third day, when the women came there to the tomb to mourn, to weep, it was open. He wasn't there. And they very quickly found out, you know, he's alive. And even when the women went and told some of his closest apostles and said, you're not going to believe this. We saw Jesus. You know what? He's alive and well. Yeah, that's one of those old lady stories, right? People like to tell. You know, your heart is so broken that you think you saw Jesus. It actually was the lady who lived next door. No, 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 no. That's not the case. The reality is he's alive. We talked to him. He's real. And, and he's real, but he's He's different, and he's even greater than what we thought he was. And they came and they met with Jesus, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes a small group, sometimes a huge group, and people realized he's alive. And that means that we have hope. If we will come to Jesus in repentance faith, we realize, Lord, I, I, 
I acknowledge I don't have all my act together, and I've done things that hurt people, and I know that I've done wrong things. But if you're willing to take my sin upon yourself, if you're willing to free me up to be a person whose sins are covered and who are taken away, I'll come. He'll take you. He'll let you be part of his family. He'll let you be a person who can experience the freedom that only God can give. And so the reality is, whether you're young or old, whatever your background is, we all need a deliverer. We all need a savior. And we've got the best you could ever have in Jesus Christ. I know this is a well-known phrase that many of you have heard it before, but it is kind of an, it grabs you. The best news the world has ever heard came from a graveyard. Most of us that are adults have been by graveyards, and usually it's a time of suffering, it's a time of pain. We've usually lost somebody. But the best news the world could ever hear came out from a graveyard. It was the word, he is not here, he's risen. Just like he said, three times he told his disciples over several months, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, we get it, we get it. And when it happened, we don't get it. Jesus said, now do you get it? Oh, yeah, we get it now. And they did. See, the reality is we need a Savior. It's not enough just to have a good religious leader who was wonderful. I mean, some people, for example, in India, they, they revere, remember Gandhi and what he did, a great man and how he suffered. I mean, those are things that you can hold on to. They're great. But the reality is, but who is going to save us from who we are? And what's so important, just imagine if you would, you're at the beach, you know, nice time at the beach, but you're not paying attention to the fact that there's, you know, some kind of undertow. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm moving further and further away from the beach. And you start swimming and you realize, I'm swimming, but I'm still going backwards. And you call out, help me, the lifeguard, I need the lifeguard. And they say, oh, I hate to tell you this, but the lifeguard's dead. Oh, now I'm really in big trouble. I need a lifeguard, but the lifeguard's dead. What is a dead lifeguard going to do for me? Zero, zilch, nada, nothing. Okay? Nothing. But you see, the difference is, is what we understand, is that because Jesus is alive and well, he can help us, he can rescue us, he can deliver us from all that which is upon us. The reality is, is each of us is going to have to take one of the most important decisions in our life. It's the issue of, will I come to Jesus Christ? Will I find life in him? Or am I going to walk away from it? One of the famous statements that Jesus said when he was teaching was this, found in the Gospel of John. Listen to it. He said, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son, Jesus talking about himself, he calls himself sometimes the Son of God, if the Son, that is, if I set you free, you are free indeed. That's the best kind of freedom you can ever have. I thank God for the freedom of this country. My grandparents were immigrants, three from Sweden and one from Norway, who left Scandinavia in poverty, and they found a good life here in America, and I'm grateful for that. But far beyond what my grandparents, my parents, and my family have experienced is the freedom that God gives to us when by faith we come to Jesus Christ. We acknowledge the fact that we have made mistakes, that we have hurt others, been hurt by others, and we've recognized that Jesus said, if you will come to me, I will forgive your sins. 
Not only will I forgive your sins, I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to give you a freedom that's going to allow you to see change in your life, transformation in what God would want to do with you. And this is the most important single decision you'll ever make. It's not who you're going to marry. It's not what school you go to, not what occupation you go to. The question is, do I believe that God sent his son Jesus to die upon a Roman cross so that you and I could have freedom? Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from the sin that continues to destroy us and move us in the wrong direction. And that is the critical question of your life. And there's many people in this room right now who have made that decision. And they're asking God, the very power in which you rose, Jesus, that you let Jesus rise from the dead, would you continue working in my life so I am more and more loving, that I'm more and more transparent and caring for people? But if you've never come to that point in your life where you've never made that decision, I would ask you one thing. Do not go out of this room without asking yourself, what do I really believe of this? Maybe you need to understand more of it. Maybe you need to talk with somebody. That's whatever it is. But don't think that this is a minor issue. This is the most critical decision you'll ever make in your life. Did, do I believe that Jesus died on a cross to take away my sin and shame, that I can have life forever with him. And if you're not sure, we'll be a number of us up, up. Larry will be here, John will be here, and Dara's was here or right over here. Feel free to come up and talk with us. Pat's right back here. If you want to meet with any of us, you want to have coffee somewhere, we're happy to do so. But the one thing you cannot, you should not do, is walk away and think this isn't important. It is by far the single most important decision that any person will make in their life. You have never experienced love like the love that God has shown by the gift of his son in Jesus Christ. You'll never get close to the love that he has for you. And the question is, have you come to him and found real life, Easter life? Father, we thank you for this passage, the script, the passages we looked at. We thank you for the fact that, Lord Jesus, and we had nothing going for us when we were lost, when we were uh, bowed down with sin, that you have been working in us through the, your Son and that we have life. We thank you that we can come to you today. And, Father, we pray that if there's anybody here who's never made a decision for Christ, that you would be working in their life, that, Father, that they would come to know you in a very real way. So be with us. Help us now as we continue in our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.